other syndicators may say, well, uh, or other people who have less money may say, well, I'll do that work myself. I'll, I'll bet the 10 sponsors that I'm going to invest $50,000 with, uh, and that gets me the diversity. And, and that's why I say, like, it's a little nebulous, this term of family office, because, you know, really anybody could be their own family office. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm really excited about this one. Today, we have Mark Massia from Massia Development. This is a wide-ranging conversation. We're going to talk with you about how to establish a family office, what a family office is, why you should establish a family office when you hit that level. And then we also get into some of his specific experiences around running and building his real estate business, his real estate development and investment business. This is a lot of fun, uh, a very fun conversation. Mark's a super nice guy. I met him a couple years ago at a conference and you're going to really enjoy this one. If you're interested in talking with him, certainly reach out to him. Again, he's a really nice guy. And uh, this family office concept is very fascinating. You know, for the folks that are hitting that level and, and we talk about what that level is when you should st consider starting a family office. If you're hit, hitting that level, reach out to Mark and talk with him. Uh, once again, it's a great conversation. Without any further ado, here's Mark Massia. Mark Massia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about how and why to set up your family office once you hit that level of wealth where a family office makes sense. But before we get into that, Mark, could you fill our listeners in on your background and what you're up to today? Sure. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so I started my career uh, working for large developers in the D.C. metro area, kind of worked up the ranks and project size, you know, from a couple hundred million dollars to you know, about half a billion when I left there and started working for Archstone, which was a you know, previously a large publicly traded REIT uh, in the, in the S&P 500 and was doing another half a billion dollar project for them on the west side of Manhattan, plus a bunch of other stuff. Um, so kind of got my institutional you know, teeth cut through all those, worked with Lehman Brothers for a while as a capital partner um, until that exploded. So got to see kind of like a ton of really interesting stuff um, you know, before the crisis. And then uh, in 2006, started my own company. Uh, so for whatever that's been, 13 years roughly, um, been doing, um, started my own company and been doing our own deals. And, and predominantly what we have done is uh, basically been outsourced family offices. Um, so what that really means is it's a fancy way of saying, you know, we, we meet a bunch of rich people that want to do deals together um, or, you know, with family members or on their own, and they have enough resources to execute that strategy on their own. Um, and we help them do all the work. So basically they say we want to do X, Y, and Z, or we come to them and say, you should do X, Y, and Z. And then we implement the, the strategy on their behalf and, and kind of do all the, the asset management, the investments, the you know, finance, the whole soup to nuts and kind of deliver them a, a easy product. Uh, we also do development. So, uh, you know, it's called Massey Development, the name of my company. And because we, you know, are developers at heart, that's what I've always done. Uh, we recently returned back to doing that in the Phoenix area where we relocated the company about two years ago. Um, so we do multifamily and, and retail development here in the in the valley. Um, and then on a nationwide basis, we invest in retail, medical office, properties uh, on behalf of family offices, as well as our own syndicated deals. Um, so that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot view of where we came from and what we do. Awesome. So I'm, I'm sure it gets very complicated from there. You, you summed it up very nicely. And you're, you're looking at or you're doing multifamily re and retail and what other kind of medical, 
medical office deals in Phoenix specifically and then others throughout the nation, right? Correct. Yeah, we we really only do multifamily in the Phoenix Valley, but um, yeah, the other deals we do kind of nationwide. So cool. So you've got quite the background to teach us about and teach our <laughs> listeners about how and why and when we should establish a family office. So before we get into that, can you give us a quick definition of what is a family office? Sure. Yeah. It's a little nebulous. Like most things in real estate, there's like 10 different ways to say the same thing. So yep. a family office generically is is uh, kind of a group of uh, usually related parties that want to accomplish some investment goal together. So, you know, you can think of the old, you know, Rockefeller families or things like that. Those are huge examples of this. Um, but as of, you know, kind of the last 10 years, this has been a real big source of capital as there's been kind of, you know, stratified, you know, families. So it's not just the multi, multi-billion dollar families that you'd think of, um, but also kind of, you know, the hundreds and tens of millions of dollars of, of people. And as those people have kind of concentrated their wealth around a, a group of like-minded individuals, especially since that, that wealth is generally generational in nature, it's not usually spent all by one person. So if you have $10 million to your name, generally speaking, you're not going to spend all 10 million before you die. You're going to give some of that to your kids. So you kind of want to have some kind of wealth planning, some kind of you know strategic investments around stocks and bonds and other things so that it plans for that multi-generational uh, investment structure. So it's really it's really just kind of like running a company around a person or a family, right? So they would have other professionals that are stock and bond traders. They would have other professionals that are tax advisors and other things. We would be the real estate component of their their strategy and their planning for for wealth. Interesting. So at what point does at what level of wealth, so to speak, or net worth, does it make sense for an individual or a family to establish their own family office, approximately? Yeah, I mean, it's in a real estate space, it's much more difficult than in the stock and bond space. I mean, your stocks and bonds are much more liquid at smaller increments, so so there there probably are very better answers on a smaller basis, um, you know, for someone who's just looking to do stocks and bonds. But in our experience, you know, if you if you have something like you know, two to three million dollars a year that's looking to be invested kind of on a regular basis, um, you know, for the foreseeable kind of future three to five years or something like that. That tends to be a good starting point. I mean, we obviously have families that are looking to invest hundreds of millions of dollars and some that are looking to invest, you know, a couple million dollars. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Um, and, and let me just also be clear, like when it's a family office, sometimes it's just an individual, right? Sometimes it's just the the wealthy matriarch or patriarch that says, I want to set up something my kids are too young to actually take over the family business or whatever the case may be. And I want to make a bunch of investable assets that produce some kind of income or give them some kind of assets to look forward to or a business to, to step into at some point when they're older. So, you know, that's why I say family office is kind of a generic term for just, you know, kind of family plan, family wealth planning or something like that. Mm, okay. So now that we have a box as to, or an idea as to when we should look at it and, and, the family office being a relatively generic term, but we'll stick with it anyway. How do we get started setting up a family office? I mean, if you, I don't know, if you handed me $50 million, and you're certainly welcome to, I wouldn't know the first <laughs> place to get started to, I don't know, hire somebody. You, I don't know if there aren't phone books anymore. You can't open sure. a phone book and find that person. So how do you yeah. even get started with that? 
Yeah, so so many of the the people that we have encountered that that haven't actually even thought of themselves as a family office, they they really have created one through kind of ad hoc, right? They may have had a great accountant that gave them great advice and led them to a great lawyer who gave them great legal protection structure, because th- those are definitely huge incremental, you know, important parts of the of the strategy. You can't you can't really protect your wealth without legal protection and, and structure and whether it be companies or family trusts or whatever. And that's, you know, way out of my league of things that I deal with in terms of when and why to set those up. I deal with them in terms of when they are set up and I have to work with them. Um, and the same with tax. Like I'm not a tax expert, but there are people who just plan tax strategy for multi-generational wealth planning and things like that. Right. And so those things will generally crop up as these things happen and as those needs and thoughts and planning starts happening. Um, and a lot of times it'll end up being also like a, a, you know, a wealth manager from a traditional standpoint. So from a stock and bond standpoint, whether it's, you know, Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs or even just like a local kind of company that's in their town. Um, so a lot of times they'll lead them to, hey, you're you're pretty well diversified and maxed out in stocks and bonds. Maybe you should consider alternative assets like real estate. Um, so a lot of times, you know, wealth managers will bring us in, and that that would that would start to make sense. But I think the other the other angle of this that's also worth talking about. We don't have to talk about it right now if that's not the right moment. But is is you know while I'm saying three million is two to three million a year is kind of like where it makes sense for us to to come in and strategies. I mean I'm sure there's people who do house flipping or smaller projects where it might make sense to say hey I, you know if I found somebody with half a million dollars that wanted to invest consistently I could build a strategy for them. Um, so I don't want to kind of discourage other you know sponsors uh, or syndicators from from thinking that it doesn't make sense to craft a strategy around someone who's a smaller investor. Um, or, or the the inverse, right? For somebody who is a smaller investor than what I just said, but but wants to start thinking about this or planning for this, uh, I think it's it's in some respects it's never too early. It's just a matter of what can you effectively do. And for us, we just found that it's not it, we can't effectively do what we need to do for smaller size than that. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a syndicator, um, you know, I'm in the syndication business. And you have somebody that needs to place half a million dollars a year in say syndications or whatever is that's just not enough. You're going to need a few of those guys to, at least in the multifamily space, and that's fine. There's no problem with that, but you're going to need a few, right. find a few of them. And at that point, it seems like you might as well, well, why stop at a half a million? I can, I could take somebody that has a quarter of a million or a hundred thousand. As long as they're accredited, then we're already in syndication anyway. So what's it matter? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And it, then it comes down to diversity. So for us, it's, you know, we find, you know, if they have their own ability to source that diversity. So if they work with us and 50 other sponsors and they have a million dollars a year to place, they could probably easily get that that diversity through those people. The problem is, you know, we when we do the work for our families, we vet everything. So it's basically like even if we're not doing the deal um uh, stoop to nuts, like we may use an, a third-party provider for certain services, we vet that service provider, right? So it's really like they don't have to do any thought, any concern, any checking. Not to say that they don't, but they don't have to. You know, they may choose to do certain things just because they don't feel comfortable with one decision or another or whatever the case may be, but they don't have to. Whereas if you are you know, smaller than that, I can't help you because I can't do all those. I can't afford to do all those things for a million dollars or half a million dollars. But other syndicators may say, well, uh, or other people who have less money may say, well, I'll do that work myself. I'll, I'll bet the 10 sponsors that I'm going to invest $50,000 with, uh, and that gets me the diversity. And, and that's why I say, like, it's a little nebulous, this term of family office, because, you know, really anybody could be their own family office. And and, and to your point about the the other side, so, like, really, there's, like, kind of two 
main differentiators. There's kind of like the in-house family office where it's like a true company where I would be, let's say, you know, let's say I'm my name is John D. Rockefeller and I want to set up my own family office. I can hire my stock expert, my bond expert, my real estate expert, whatever asset class. And I can they can be my employees, right? It can truly be people that work directly for me and do nothing else. And that's not mm -hmm. uncommon, right? A lot of the bigger families do have that. Uh, Richard Branson's one I, I specifically bump into their real estate group all the time. And, you know, he has his own real estate company within his basically him, right? And and he's wealthy enough to do that. Not everybody is, or and also not everybody wants that. A lot of our families end up being, they have the ability and the wherewithal. They don't want to manage all those people, right? Because it's not just me, it's my staff and my consultants and all the people we work with. So what we provide is really what's called the outsourced family office, which is somebody who says, look, I want to either, either I have a strategy or I want a strategy presented to me that I agreed to. And then I want somebody to implement that kind of, you know, it's almost going all the way back to like the single family house flip model, which is like, you know, the kind of quote unquote turnkey where it's like there, someone's doing all the work and you're just collecting the rent. Well, it's that on a much larger scale, right? Like we're doing that for institutional grade type transactions and all they have to do is say, this is what we want to do and we go and do it. And even on the, even on the rent collection side, like they don't deal with asset managers, they don't deal with tenants, they don't, we do all of that. Hmm. Okay. So they, you're, as you're filling this out or building this, this family office world for me, you know, I'm seeing so much more that's out there or, or the, the complexity of this family office world. And it makes a lot of sense that it would be complex, but I think the underlying, one of the underlying things that I see here, one of the underlying problems, no matter what they're doing, is vetting people that are going to manage your money. No matter if it's the outsourced, outsourced family office like you provide, or if they're bringing on the accountants and such and building their own team, managing them absolutely is a whole, you know, can of bees on its own, but uh, you know, finding the right people is also a very important factor. So, you know, how do they handle, and again, this, I, know, I understand this would be a very broad answer, but handling <laughs> vetting people like yourself or any of the people they might be trusting with a, you know, like you said, $3 million plus dollars a year. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money to trust somebody with, even if you're sure. worth 50, $100 million. No, yeah, it's a great, and, you know, honestly, like the most interesting part about when I started kind of navigating this world was, kind of seeing that, right? Like these are people who have, you know, resources that I, when I was growing up, couldn't have imagined. And so I thought it would just be like super easy, right? You just be like, oh, snap your fingers and talk to the 20 people that you're super well networked with and they'll tell you the the people that you should trust. Um, in many ways, it becomes the opposite. Like most of the families that I work with are very private people. They don't want people to know that they're wealthy. They don't know very many other wealthy people. Um, you know, they have friends and family, but they're kind of tight knit group. They don't really, and, and a lot of times, most of them won't even really talk business with each other. So it's not like, I mean, mm -hmm. literally to the extreme, some of them don't even know what the other people made their wealth in. They're like, yeah, I don't know. I think they ran a gym or something. You're like, I Ruby don't gosh. think that's what they did, but okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So it, it becomes this difficult problem, right? Because you you have to build trust with people outside your sphere of influence, but how do you build trust with those people? Because they're inherently coming to you essentially looking to make money from you, right? And sometimes sure. that's a positive way. Sometimes it's they want to deliver a service that's really valuable, um, but other times it's nefarious, right? It's like they just see an easy mark or a way of... So what I find is like, it's it's the hardest part of the whole business is building that trust. And um, you know, some of the families we've worked with, we worked with for uh, over 15 years and, and some we've worked with for only a few years, but I've been working on working with them for 10 years, right? Meaning I've been trying to develop that rapport and that trust and that, you know, confidence in me that I can do things. 
Um, so, so some of it is, is really just kind of doing what you need to do to build that relationship. And, and you know, like I said, in a normal world, it would be coming through a warm lead. Um, but almost none of the families that we work with now uh, knew each other before. So I couldn't say like, oh, just refer me to your three friends that are also wealthy and this will be a great party for everyone. That's not how that played out. It, it would have been great. And I'm sure some people it has worked out that way. But for me, it was much more a long slog of like, hey, still meeting with you two years later. I'm still not a charlatan. You know, like you should trust me and blah, blah, blah. And, and then others, it was also like less time intensive and more just kind of like, look, you're worth X. Let's try one 50 millionth of X on the first deal. And if I do great, then you can continue to trust me. And if I don't, then you never have to talk to me again kind of thing, right? Where it's just kind of make the the barrier to entry uh, significantly smaller. Um, that That's something that has worked for us personally in the past. But, you know, I, I wish there was an easy answer because the, the challenge is both sides, right? Like they, they want to trust, but don't. And we want them to trust, but it, we don't know necessarily how to get them to figure that out. So it's, it, it's an interesting problem. And everybody's got their own their own things in their mind that that relay influence how comfortable they feel and you know the psychology i'm not a psychologist at all but psychologists tell us that you know, we don't even really understand our decision making processes and many of sure. the decisions we make we make them and then we try to understand why or we make up Justify, reasons right why we, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. so uh we got a question here on the facebook live feed Okay, so this is, a, this is a very good question. So if high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals don't talk to one another and they don't communicate really, then how much do service providers like yourself or, you know, I'm sure you guys talk in the industry, how much do you worry about messaging up, me messing up and damaging your own reputation and, and the others finding out about it? And you know, bad news travels quickly, faster than good news so how much of that is a concern i mean none of us want to screw up right yeah but how well is yeah no i mean i think it's actually it's a really interesting question uh because it, it brings up a, an important point it, it, it's funny how that works right like i find that when things go well uh most of the investors that that i know and at the level that i know them they won't tell other people not because they don't think highly of me or what it just it's just not what they do but if something went wrong, luckily it hasn't happened to us that I'm aware of, but you will definitely hear about it. You know, I, for instance, I know one investor of ours who um, was working on an import export business, like a uh, totally foreign world to me, but it was something he was doing with someone else just because that's, again, like a family office. They have investment strategies that, that you or I wouldn't even think of and they can implement them. And so they were doing this import export business overseas. Um, and the first, the reason he was talking about it to me is he's like, oh, well, how come you can't get returns like this guy? And for months and months and months, I kept hearing this guy's getting 200, 300, 400% on his money. And it's this amazing thing. Well, lo and behold, like a year later, he, he calls me up. He's like, uh, he's like, uh, talking about something. And I was like, oh, how's that import export? Because I haven't heard about it in a while. He's like, oh yeah, the guy left with $200,000 of my money and I never heard from him again. And he's like, you know, they go after them and they sue him and they tell every single person that they know about this person. And so it's like, Somehow that ends up being the network effect, right? If it's a negative, everybody somehow knows about it. It'll hit Facebook, right. it'll hit everywhere. But if it's a positive, it doesn't seem to make quite the same effect. And, and I'd say also like that may be one of the downsides. I mean, this is kind of the, the lot in life that we chose. These are the kind of people and organizations and groups that we know. And so that's what we've kind of honed as our expertise. Um, but I'd say like the downside uh, to, to this questioner's point is, you know, 
if you get somebody at 50,000 or 100,000 and you do right by them, nine times out of 10, those people will tell 20 other friends or family or whatever. And that network effect is real. I mean, that's today's world, right? Facebook, we're on it right now. And if they, if I sent here, uh, this person made me a million dollars, you should call them. They're amazing. They're great. You know, like everyone's going to do that. But if I'm ultra wealthy, I'm not doing that, right? I'm, I'm not getting on those same social media platforms or doing whatever. I'm a very private insular person. In fact, I want the opposite. I don't want Mark or any of my service providers even mentioning my name that I work with them um, because of just the insular world that I want to live in. And, and we respect that privacy. I get it. But it is difficult mm -hmm. because it's not, it doesn't have that same network effect of growth, but it could in the negative side to your point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, I thought for a second, um, you're going to say, and that man was Bernie Madoff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, those things are probably more common than we'd like to think. And we got a, another really good question here from a friend of mine uh, that's watching on the live stream. For you, two questions kind of uh, lumped together. How do you hire in your business and how have you built your team? And I think this translates well to the family office investor there too. They're vetting somebody yeah. like you, examining your thought process. Uh, so. You know, let's get into that. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so we actually have a pretty strange team in that we built the company in New York uh, and all of my original hires were from the NYU uh, Real Estate Master's Program, which is the program that I went to and taught at. Um, and mm -hmm. so we hired a lot of those people based on just kind of knowing that program was good and knowing people that went through there had a certain level of training and expertise. Um, and some of those people ended up being, you know, classmates of mine that I knew and others just were people that went through the program. Um, and originally that was a really great way to get those people uh, because it was kind of like a like a standard of like knowledge base. Um, but as we moved uh, and we subsequently moved the company, you know, a couple of times. And now, like I said, it's in Phoenix, so significantly further from the New York area that we started in. Um, <laughs> it, it it's been a, a different challenge because we've we've kept many of those original hires. Um, so so we essentially have three uh, three locations where those those people are are currently. Uh, including Phoenix, which is where we're doing all of the new hires. Um, but I found that that most of my hires at least have had some degree of of affiliation with us from a friend of a friend or through an alma mater or through something like that. Um, that's been almost all of our best hires. The only other way that we found that's been good is we we do kind of like an intern program where um, people can you know come in and whether they have an interest in real estate, whether they're in a real estate master's program and it's the summer or whatever the case may be. Um, they want to kind of work for the experience. Um, you know, we pay them something, but not not obviously what they hope to be paid when they get out of school or when they're done with their training. Um, and many of those people have gone on to kind of build their own job, right? So we give them the opportunity to basically work on something real. And it, at the end of that, if they've been successful, and sometimes it's not always their fault, right? Sometimes the project just falls flat for whatever reason, like it just certain things they couldn't control. But but if they were able to make that project a success, we always give them the opportunity to kind of come on as an employee. Not always. We usually try to give them the opportunity to come on as an employee to run that project, you know, if the, if the circumstances allow. That way it gives them kind of like, well, no one knows that project better than that person that was running it. Um, and so it's a good opportunity for them to come up the ranks, make more money, but it's also a good opportunity for us to keep talent that was able to do something that, you know, not everyone is able to do. So you you develop them and bring them in early, and that's the going to be the advantage of being a, you know, a, a I don't know the size of your company, but that's going to be the advantage of being a smaller company compared to uh, you know one of the the big names on Wall Street that's just a you know enormous company that yeah it, I mean it, it might not be as concerned like, with developing people yeah it's true to some degree but it's also I mean I, 
you know, I know people have gone through Goldman Sachs training program. And even at Archstone, when I was there, um, I didn't go through the program, but there were two friends of mine who essentially got picked for this. I forget what they called it, like the CEO track or something like that. And essentially wow. they took them and they rotated them around the country through all the different divisions, through all the different things that we did. So property management, development, investment, um, construction, all the different things that our company at, at Archstone did. It was a huge publicly traded company. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of time, money, effort and resources that these people weren't really, quote unquote, producing traditional work like they weren't like I never I was always like, what do you actually do? Because you kind of have touched everything, but you don't really aren't in charge of anything yet. Um, but they were learning. Right. And then the idea would be that they would matriculate through the Archstone system, if you will, and, and become higher level executives at some point because they had touched all of the parts of the company. That really inspired me. I loved that. I thought that was such a great idea. I mean, it's 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 a real commitment of resources and time. But I was like, that's so cool. Like, even if those people don't stay, like, they're always going to remember that company as somebody that really took an interest in their their well-being and success. And and both oh, yeah. of those people, you know, are successful now today. Um, and you know, I don't know. I don't keep in touch with them as much anymore. But I would I would guess that they attribute a lot of that to that to that level. And you know, I'd like to think in some small way we we try to do that too. So even if they don't matriculate through our system and become an employee and they go on somewhere else, you know, we hope we help them in some way to kind of because we're a very transparent company. That's how we run with our investors. Uh, you know, part of gaining trust is we we tell everyone everything from from our investors standpoint. We never hide anything. Uh, and it's true with our employees. Like I, I rarely will tell people, not tell someone something, even though maybe sometimes like a, high, a different CEO would, you know, they say like, that's not really for you to know. It's like, I don't really care. You know, like that's just, it's open. Oh, nice. I like it. So now that you've moved from, you know, primary market to, uh, I don't know, Phoenix is still a huge place to live, but it's, you're not right next to NYU anymore. What would you say sure. is the hardest part about, hiring for your business? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Definitely. It's changed a lot, right? Before it was everybody wanted to be in New York. So it was easy to find talent because everyone, every young person I could think of was trying to move there. The hardest part truly was paying them a wage that we could afford as a startup company and that they could afford to live. I mean, most of our early employees, you know, it was like they were sharing a one bedroom apartment with like five other friends from college or something. And Oof. it was kind of an, yeah. an untenable situation for any extended period of time. Um, but meanwhile, that was like all we could afford to pay because it was like a hundred thousand dollars, you know. So it's like that in New York is a is a poor person's wage, but you know, out here that would be a significant salary. And so I think the the inverse has happened with with affordability. Everything here is much much more affordable, and so those that live here, you know, can live on a significantly different salary, let's say. Um, but you know, the the talent pool is definitely different. Like fewer people are looking to move here. Um, than say New York or LA or San Francisco or whatever. I mean, I personally think that's a mistake. Um, I think there's a lot of, I think that's changing. I think there's a lot of people that are realizing like it, it's not so great to be starving in New York compared to being super rich in Houston <laughs> or Austin or some other city, you know, um, where yeah. there's still a lot of great amenities and, and the, uh, you know, the kind of geographic arbitrage as we were talking about earlier makes a lot more sense. But you know, I, I can't change the world. I can just throw out my opinion. Um, and and so we're lucky in that we do have Arizona State University here, which is a huge school with lots of smart, you know, good people. And they have a great real estate program that I'm just starting to become more accustomed to, um, you know, being involved with because it wasn't where I went to school. Um, and, you know, University of Arizona is not too far away either. So we've got, um, you know, we've got some good educational people that we just educated people that we just have to keep here uh, as opposed to necessarily bringing everybody in from outside. 
Um, but it, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's definitely harder, let's say that, right? And, and so that, that's definitely been the challenge as we grow is to continue to keep that same level of talent that we want. Mm. Have you uh, started using or tried to use freelancers or virtual assistants in your business? Yeah, I mean, we kind of have always used some form of outsourcing just because by nature we were never looking to be like 500 people. Um, so from the very get-go, um, we've used outsourced people. Um, the the consistency and the quality is sometimes difficult. You know, yeah. you, you find a you find a consultant that you really like and they do really well. I mean, we were just talking about this with web designer, right? Like I had a really great web designer and and I really loved them and they were affordable and all this kind of great stuff. And then they went out of business or or another group that like not a web design person, but an outsourced person that we use, they went and got a job. They were like, I just made more money working for someone else and having my own company. I was tired of it. And it's like, well, that's great for you, but not so great for me because that was the only person <laughs> I was using for that particular service, right? So, so I think the consistency becomes difficult, but yeah, it's an amazing world out there, like what you can get done. I mean, a perfect example is the other day we were doing a, an architectural rendering for a project and when I first started, literally no exaggeration, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old, that like people were like watercolor hand painting the renderings, right? And it took like forever, like a month or whatever, I don't know, forever, right? And it's like, if you changed anything, literally one time it was raining and they like got ruined, it's completely like ran on the paper and that was the only rendering we had because it was, it was watercolor. You know, but now it's like I, I can talk to people in, we're working with a group in India, we're working with a group in uh, Eastern Europe, and, you know, they can turn around something in 24 hours because they're on a different time basis than we are, you know, with the with time scale and uh, and you know, do it for like fifteen dollars. And it's like and it's, it looks like a photo. It's like photorealistic. It's perfect. You know, so those kind of things, it's like things have changed, you know, insane, even in whatever it's been, 10, 15 years since I started doing you know these kind of things. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, that's been very similar to my experience, the it's hard to hang on to the folks that are very good and competitively priced because they either figure that out and significantly raise their prices sometimes <laughs> outside of the range you can really justify right. on occasion. Uh, yeah. But when you get somebody that's a right fit that can handle a job and a task that you can at least systematize reasonably well, then yeah it can save you so much time and, and it's worked for me. Uh, you know, and, and Tyler gave me a bunch of great questions. He asked me to, I'll, I'll give him a shout out. He asked me uh, from bullpen uh, commercial real estate analysis. Oh, services. okay. So yeah. I gave him, gave him a shout out. Nice. nice. Awesome. So, so next week, I think. All right. Well, there you go. There you go. He's a great guy. And uh, he used to live in Richmond, but he has since uh, moved Moved out west, and you know, I was going to say something about being next to ASU. You were a teacher at NYU's business school. Have you considered being a teacher at ASU as a part of your employee lead generation, so to speak? Sure. No, it's a great idea, actually. So I, I started teaching at NYU uh, pretty much right after I graduated just because, you know, when I graduated, I had no money, and I was trying to give back to an alma mater that I felt like gave me an immense amount um, so it was kind of my way of giving back and helping them out because it was a class that they couldn't find any teacher to do. And I was like, all right, fine. I actually know a lot about this particular subject, so I'll teach that. And I just kept doing it. And I really enjoyed it. And the students have been amazing. And I've actually learned probably more than many of the students in the class just from hearing from the students that have been in the class. Um, so so really, that was the impetus, was like to learn, to meet people, and to give back to my alma mater. And so that that wouldn't have the same thing for ASU because I didn't go there and whatnot. But, but to your point about hiring people, yeah. 
Um, it's a great way to meet people. It's a great way to meet potential employees. It's just a great thing. And I do enjoy it. Um, hopefully some people think I'm good at it. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's been really hard, honestly, because it's such a big school. Um, it's been hard to kind of navigate to the right people and get the right opportunity to to do something for 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 them. Um, you know, I, maybe I got lucky at NYU and that they happened to have this class that they really needed someone to teach that was part of their core curriculum that no one wanted to teach. And maybe I just got lucky and it never would have happened again. But um, it's been hard. I, I am meeting with someone from ASU next week, so stay tuned. But uh, for now, I, I don't do that yet. But I hope I hope to in the future. Cool. Well, I, that kind of thing. You know, I can imagine it take a a lot of time to teach a class. You know, that that's a a full job on its own in addition to your, you know, actual business. So hard to take the time yeah. out during the day. So it's like, getting I back think it's like to, your podcast, though. It's like, you know, helping people is fun. So it doesn't really feel like work, right? I mean, doing this, I'm, I'm sure it's not always like you get up every day and you think it's the best thing ever. But, you know, somebody calls in and says, I learned that or this was really helpful or this was really... I mean, to me, that's makes it all worth it, right? If I can help anybody, that's that's worth it. Yeah, and you're doing you're you're doing the thing that that you like to do, or talking about the thing that you like to work on and talk about. So it's right. It is a lot of fun. I mean, the the I I've been investing in stuff in in stocks and bonds since I had a couple of nickels to rub together, and you know, I I knew I needed to turn it into more someday. So sure. you know, it's just it's fun to talk to people like yourself and and learn myself and help others learn and teach yeah. the you know little bit that I know. So definitely very rewarding. Getting back to the the family office side, you know, we've got we're getting so many good questions from the Facebook live stream <laughs> here. Uh, my friend Angel asks, is it ultimately about liquidity when someone is starting a family office? So the sounded like from what you're saying, it, it comes down to their annual investable capital. So is it about liquidity or um, yeah, like as far as a definition, no. I mean, it could be net worth, could be you know a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever number you want to set, and they they could structure their own family office. But yeah, investable tends to be what I consider because if you can't do something with the wealth, if it's not liquid or movable or you know uh, usable, it, it's not. It, there's not much to do, right? So if you have a hundred million dollar real estate empire that your grandfather gave you, but you can't sell any of the buildings because it's owned with 50 partners that don't want to sell, you know that's great. It's an amazing asset, and you are a family office. But there's not really many decisions you or a you know a service provider like myself can add to that to actually make any valuable changes. So while it does not make a family office, it's really kind of the only interesting component of a family office for a group like myself or or even for them because you know if they own a $10 million house, that's great. You're worth $10 million, but you're not going to do very much with that because you live in that $10 million house, right? So that's not you know that's not going to be that useful in in that respect, in an investable respect. Yeah, it might be the most useful house ever. I don't mean it like that. I'm just saying. Hey, I'd like a $10 million house, but uh, <laughs> I you know I I can see that perspective and you know we had. Richard Wilson on the show uh, in the past, he mentioned that the family office investors or family offices tend to think about their wealth in terms of three different buckets. And one of those buckets was they invest in the asset class or the investment that made them their money in the first place. If Say if they started right. a business and then sold it, then they'll just go invest in those businesses. And they might know that business well enough that they don't need, you know, uh, like advisement from somebody like yourself. So it right. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah.
Okay, Mark, so I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? Sure, yes, I'm ready. All right, great. First, what is the best investment you ever made? Um, I think my education was definitely the best. I got two master's degrees, one from George Washington, one from uh, NYU, and um, you know, they were cheap, definitely, and I paid for them, but uh, <laughs> they were by far the best. Uh, not just what I learned, I, I learned a great deal, but the network has been, you know, like I told you, employees, has been investors, has been friends, has been everything. So maybe that's cheesy, but that's by far the easiest answer I have is that that was the best investment. Okay. But if we were to talk in specific terms of a, sure. uh, that's a good answer. I'm not, I'm not doubting okay. that answer, but if we're talking no, no, about that's a fair. specific real estate, I like or it. Whatever, holding I me to task, we're holding me yep. to task. I like it. Um, uh, real estate, the by far best, uh, investment I made was in 2010. Uh, we bought a couple of, uh, single tenant, uh, net lease deals, um, at, you know, like, 10 plus caps, which, you know, today are selling at, you know, five or less yeah. caps. Uh, I didn't do anything to these assets except collect amazing checks from amazing tenants that have high credit and didn't go out of business. So I didn't do anything other than buy them at the correct time. And now we're selling them for a humongous profit. So those deals by far, uh, in terms of the best investment, they weren't the best thing that I ever did, but they were the best return and, and kind of, you know, proved out that like, you know, buy low, sell high based on, you know, on uh, buying at the right time was, was, was easy to do. Yeah. Riding that cap rate decompression wave has benefited a lot of people, honestly. Yeah. Bought at the right time. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. You know, there's, oh, there's so many. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> probably there are actually, I don't know. Um, I mean, the the short answer and probably the truth answer is all the deals that, you know, we lost out for like negotiation reasons. So like if I put a $100,000 deposit and then something gets messed up uh, during due diligence and either we can't buy it or you know, somebody sneaks in and buys it because we missed the deadline or something, because those are 100% loss. Now, luckily, those aren't loss of investor dollars, but it's still loss of my money. So it hurts more. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think the... The hardest investment we made, um, we didn't lose any money on it, so I don't know if it's technically the worst investment we made, although actually we haven't lost any investor money on any deals we've done, so I can't use any of those. Although I said we lost our own money plenty of times, but investor money, no. Um, but the, the, the worst deal we did was our first student housing deal. Um, we had brought in an institutional capital partner and um, a manager to deal with that for us. And they essentially quit mid mid deal. Oh. So they were just like, we don't want to do this anymore, you know. And not only was that really, really hard to bounce back from, I mean, we figured it out uh, in the end, like through a long, horrible transition process. But I also say like from my own standpoint, it was early in my career, it was early in the deal. And I really handled that very poorly. Like I got very angry and kind of like, you know, didn't handle that transition well, let's say this. That, that company, if they hear my name, probably just say the, the worst things about me. And I think if I look back, like that was probably the worst thing. You know, that's not how I am 99% of the time, but they kind of caught me at the the worst possible point in my career on the worst possible, you know, thing and just side, side blinded me. So, um, yeah, I did yeah. that deal. That one has the most pain for sure. Fair enough. We've all had days like that, or we're not being honest if we say we haven't had a day like that. So, at least, you know, in terms of uh, not repre representing ourselves well, you know, <laughs> days like that. So, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay. And then the last question is my favorite one. What is the most important <laughs> lesson you've learned in investing? Um, it's the constant balance between um, believing your gut, which I believe to be an immensely important thing, but not blindly. So I think a lot of times people do stuff and, and, you know, they feel like it's the right thing. And so they don't really fact check it or they don't really, you know, question it. Um, and so I think that constant struggle of that balance to me is the, probably the most important thing. It's, it's the, I'm not saying I've learned it. Like I know that this I'm perfect at it. That's not at all the case, but I think I know it to be a thing that I need to be aware of. And that was one of the biggest aha moments in my investing career, because before it was, doubt, 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 don't trust your gut until you have facts and then go forward. And you miss a lot of opportunities that way or sometimes make the wrong conclusion because you're too cautious. Um, but the opposite is also not true, right? You don't want to just be like, yep, I know it in my gut. So it's definitely true. And who cares about facts, right? So it's like, yeah. and, and those are obviously the two extremes and the, the gray area in the middle is the hardest part where it's usually living, right? It's like, am I really sure? Or is this just me wanting this to be sure, right? In my gut. Um, I think that balance is is immensely difficult. I struggle with it every single day, but just being aware of it has been hugely beneficial to me just to be like, you know, or or even having a partner. Like I have a great partner who will constantly gut check me and say like, are you sure or are you just, you know, pulling this out of your butt or something? <laughs> it sounds like though, from what you said that you might've had that realization about the importance of your gut feeling at a specific time. Like there was some, event that catalyzed you to say my gut had the right answer a month ago or something like that is that right yeah i mean there, there's there's been tons of those that should have hit me over the head and said like this is the time and then and it was really kind of looking back on many of those situations so i can't necessarily say like it was last week and and this is what happened it was more like when i looked back you know uh, we did a 10-year planning look back recently and when i looked back i said man, here's all those things where like gut was truly right and I knew it was right and I still just doubted myself and didn't happen. Or the other way where I was like, man, how did we get into that deal? Because I was just like, yep, just trust me, guys. It's going to be great. My gut's telling me, right? And so it's kind of like realizing that both times when those things went terribly, it was because I let one lead too much and not the other pay attention at all. Mm -hmm. and... hmm. Finding that, that sweet spot calibrating. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the tough. fun, right? I mean, it's not, it's not, it, that's life. It's a journey, but uh, at least to me, being aware of it is, is difficult because I, I find, or is helpful rather. I find that especially like if you're a younger entrepreneur or, or syndicator or whatever, um, usually one of those is driving you. So usually it's like, I meet a person who's just starting doing deals and they're like, every deal I do is the deal we have to do. And they're great. And that's like their gut saying like, everything is good because you're smart and hungry and you'll just make it work. And it's like, there's great value in that. And that's great optimism. And I, that's the only way you're going to eventually get deals done. But then I also see people on the other end where it's like, you know, uh, but that's also where you die, by the way. If you do every single deal <laughs> and the first deal you do happens to be the deal, you do, that's exactly how you just don't survive because you do the worst deal ever first, you know, or whatever. So there's balance there that's needed. But the other way is also true, like analysis paralysis. Like I meet 20 people a day that are like 100 times smarter than me and could do way better and they just doubt themselves and I can't get them across the goal line to be like, you know, this is a good deal. You know, you could do this. Just do it, you know, and it's like they don't, you know, and it's it's disappointing and it's it's unfortunate, but it just kind of is the human condition on some respects. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of newer investors who are thinking about getting into real estate just sit on the sidelines and, and don't do anything. And I mean, I've definitely, especially at the beginning, I've, I certainly felt prey to analysis paralysis and I try not to now, but 
And it's yeah. a little easier because I'm aware of it, but I'm more of a shiny object syndrome kind of guy. That's, <laughs> that's really my main failure. Yeah. I got to stay away yeah. from that. But, you're an entrepreneur, man. That's like, uh, that's, that's everybody. If you're in the entrepreneurial space, you are the king or queen of, of shoddy object for sure. Ooh, this thing. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a whole topic on its own. So Mark, <laughs> thanks for everything today. Where can folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more and talk about family offices or any of the investments that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, so all the social media platforms, it's MassiaDev. Um, and you can also email me at mark at MassiaDev.com or go to our website, um, MassiaDev.com. So that's kind of the best way. But um, yeah, I'm sure put all that in the show notes because my name is not always the easiest to spell. So Yeah, that's uh, M-A-S-C-I-A, correct? Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Very correct. Perfect. I've, you know, we had to rehearse my pronunciation of it before the show. So. <laughs> no, you did great. You did great. <laughs> all right, great. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today once again. I certainly appreciate all the time and knowledge and taking time to have a conversation with us today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. My pleasure. To everybody out there, uh, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for tuning in to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It'd be a big help. If you know somebody that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our tribe and we'll get them along that path to generating their passive wealth and starting their passive wealth strategy. Hope you all have a great rest of your day, a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Take care.